Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I am more of a visual auditory person. Mm-hmm. I'm learning still to use words. <laughs> I've been described like as a feral person. <laughs> Especially when I was young and you have youth and you have um, collagen and, <laughs> and you, have <laughs> you don't need words. You have adrenaline. Youth and collagen. You don't need no <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Michelle Ende Giacello has been a working musician since she was a teenager. She's 55 now and just put out her 11th solo album, her first in five years. It started as a kind of personal pandemic project, and now she's sharing it with the world. When we talked, she was just back from a quick European tour— yeah, Romania, Berlin, London. I've lost, yeah, but those are the st- standouts for Switzerland. Yes, yeah, standouts for me, yeah. Oh, that sounds like a whirlwind jaunt, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been shaken, I fear, I've lost my way. This is the song, An Invitation, from her latest album, which is called The Omnicord Real Book. Michelle's music is jazz, funk, sometimes folky, ethereal, always with a groove. She mostly splits her time between Brooklyn and outside the city in Hudson, New York. But most of her recording happens in New York City, even though she finds the place pretty overwhelming. This band don't work for me. <laughs> I'm really not listening to the rhythm of New York, uh-huh. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me. The noise. I am. I have very sensitive auditory systems, so that's hard for me. I uh, I try to adjust my humanity to to fit within this rhythm and system. You mm-hmm. know, I just try to create something for myself. And is it is it that you notice things that other people can tune out, or how would you describe how it works? Oh, very. I like the way you put that. 
it's the inability to tune out. I haven't. I I'm just taking in all that I hear, and then it just becomes a, co- a cacophony. And I ha- I sometimes struggle to discern and focus. That's why I really enjoy um, silence. Michelle grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in the 70s and 80s, surrounded by music. And she found the bass by chance. My father was a jazz musician, and my brother was a budding musician. He played guitar. And his friend left a bass over. And prior to that, I had tried the clarinet. I tried playing in, like, more traditional ensembles. And my father had even tried to find me a, an instructor but when, when his friend left the bass over and I could see that I could play with my brother, and at that time, Chic was a very popular band, which is made of a bass and guitarist and a band called GQ that I loved, <laughs> um, and the go-go scene. It was just, I knew this instrument would allow me to play with other people and make things. It's interesting to me that it was by chance that you picked up the bass. Um, because I I think of bass players as <laughs> you know you you don't like the bass player like is usually in the back not the center of attention but they're the ones setting the tone and setting the groove for the entire room um hmm. but maybe in a way that you don't always notice um there's a quiet like a there's like a there's like a quiet forcefulness I feel like to bassist. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that's right? Huh. yeah. I, I I hear that generalization about us. I mean, we're all different, right? Trust me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, like uh, Thundercat does not want to be in, you know, sitting in the back. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're all different. Um, I do think of the bass though as the bridge between the magic of harmony and the power and heartbeat and life of rhythm, the drummer. Mm. And so I think without the bass player, (laughs) the other two things are just abstractions, you know, and they're show-offy in a way, where the bass player is content in solidifying what's already there. Yeah, I love. I'm not show offy, but without me, you're you're two separate abstractions. <laughs> you know yes, I mean? <laughs> just didn't want to sound like an asshole, but that's what I'm really want to say. I was trying to be like, oh, how do I say it? Like I'm very like I'm confident about that. <laughs> and I will tell you, when I was first listening to Michelle as a kid, when she burst on the scene in the '90s, I loved the way she made her presence known. This is Makes Me Wanna Holler from her 1996 album, Peace Beyond Passion. Make me wanna holler. Sadness fills my heart. Make me wanna holler. Make me wanna holler. Make me wanna holler. You've talked about teaching yourself how to play music and in part doing that by listening to Prince records. <laughs> yeah. Can you help me picture this? Like, where where would you do this, and which songs oh, wow. do you remember? <laughs> oh wow! Um, 
At that time, I lived in Maryland, the suburb outside of Southeast Washington. And it was like our first house that had like a rec room. Mm -hmm. And so in that room, my father, he collected stereo equipment. And so there's this great stereo and I had a an amp and a bass and I would just sit and play the records over and try to emulate the bass line. Meaning I taught myself to play by ear, mm -hmm. by listening instead of um, in a, uh, me reading music. Yeah. And then I remember going to a party and it was his first record and I heard it and it just was the moment I knew that's what I was going to do with my life. Wow. I just wanted to be able to play and organize music in a way that was uh, palpable or like it, it, you could dance to it. It felt good. It was interesting. And I just was, my mind was blown. Like you could, it was uh, just, yeah, palpable experience hearing the layering of the vocals. It was like choir music almost. Mm. I don't know if um, I would play that first tune. It's called For You on his first record. It just really influenced my psyche. The, it showed me the power of the human voice and harmony and just really spoke to me in a deep way. And I think I was learning, yeah, the power of that particular modality you know, sexuality and rhythm, dance, cultivating a space of enchantment, which music does. Mm. He enchanted me. He taught me enchantment. And teenage Michelle, she dug in. This song is from her first album in 1993, Digging You Like an Old Soul Record. Remember back in the day when everyone was black and kind down for the struggle I brought us all together Sit back and talk Cultivating a positive vibe Blue lights in the basement Freedom was at hand and you could just taste it It was so cool The music scene in D.C. became her scene I played like five nights a week I played in go-go bands and cover bands, the pep rally band. Uh -huh. I had a, te a teacher that changed my life. Um, her name was Mary Cole, and she taught at Oxon Hill High School, and she also taught my brother, and she had a band called Malaika, mm -hmm. and it was the training ground for me to be the musician, the band leader that I, I tried to be in my beginnings. I, I owe it all to her guidance, mm -hmm. you know. So that's that's cool. Is she, is she still living? Yes. I got an email from her the other day. She's quite old, so I know as long as the emails keep coming. But we have a really, um, you know, she was there for my brother and I, my, my family. I grew up in a very tumultuous household. And it was Mary Cole who just, you know, came to my rescue, hmm. always instilling in me curiosity about music, you know. Like, I remember her having the record for the concert for Apartheid. Oh. And that being my first, uh, you know, seeing and hearing 
music from the, that 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 continent and that diaspora. Um, she always expressed upon me like, read, like just try to force yourself to, you know, enjoy fiction and other sort of uh, literature to you know just keep your mind going. And also, like, there was always people wanted, saw in me an, a, a hope that I would go to college. And, um, and so, yeah, I thank her so much for giving me skills because I'm very much an autodidactic. I did not really excel <laughs> um, in school. It was a very difficult environment for me. But w- with her, it really, she gave me skills that I use till this day. Hmm. She must be very proud of you. Oh, I hope so. I she, she's yeah, she's come to see my see me play. Like my mother like my mother his own would not come see me play. Mm. I think she came once and stayed for like 5 minutes, but Mary Cole has always been just extremely supportive to all my endeavors. You say that's your boyfriend, you say I'm out of line. He said I could call him up anytime You could call me wrong, say that I ain't right But if that's your boyfriend, he wasn't last night I'm the kind of woman, I'll do almost anything To get what I want, I might play any little game Call me what you like, but you know it's true You're just jealous, cause he wasn't with you Don't mean no harm, I just like what I see And it ain't my fault if he wants me Got what I wanted and the feeling was right If that's your boyfriend, he wasn't last night This is another great song from her debut album called If That's Your Boyfriend. For Michelle, after high school, the responsibilities of adulthood came quickly. I had a baby at 20. By 21, I moved to New York. Michelle fell into the scene there and made new artists and musician friends in New York, people with industry connections. Her demo cassette got passed around, and she quickly signed a record deal. It literally just lined up like that. Because I had a child, and I think I, I tried to see what it would be like to be with the other, my child's, you know, other, <laughs> um, I don't even know what to call that person because we have absolutely, no, there's nothing between us. <laughs> this is the, the uh, other parent of your child? So, yeah. Uh-huh. And so I knew, I knew, I just knew, like, I, whatever was going to happen f- for my life and my son is on me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure it comes across as swagger, but I think it's more like a mountain climber. I just have the will to survive. Mm-hmm. I often tell people I'm a mediocre musician, but I'm an idea person, mm-hmm. and I listen and, and I think that's what's gotten me so far. Hmm. I just have the will to, the will and the curiosity and a compulsion <laughs> huh. to make music. Are you saying that part of what was propelling you in that, those early, in that early time in New York was, was feeling like you needed to earn to take care of your kid? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I grew up with a depressed parent. My mother was severely depressed. And uh, my father was like (laughs) an amazing man in the sense of shiny, Mm. very compelling, and very talented. And 
en enchanting. <laughs> um, that word's been coming up for me. But there was another side, too, that was just chaos, utter chaos. So what, yeah, between the depression and having to depend on my father or having the, the thought of having to depend on a man just really, I think, ignited in me. Yeah, just like I had to create my own world. Mm -hmm. And I think the mechanism for surviving a lot of the experiences of childhood was to go within myself, within my imagination, and create. It is my solace. Mm. It is the one thing that I count on. Um, and I know that it is a gift from the creator because it just has been something that I just, I don't question it. It's the only thing I don't question. Coming up, Michelle on the strange experience of being a famous musician only some of the time. When I have the bass and I'm on stage, people see me as one thing. But in my neighborhood in Carroll Gardens, most people think I'm the nanny. Or, you know, we were somewhere and I would get on the elevator and people would, you know, get off. You know, so it's like... I'm just at a place in my life where the only thing I have control over is my state of being, and I'm really enjoying the dance I'm having with myself. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. If you don't yet know Michelle and Dege Cello's music well, I'm pretty sure you've heard this one. And everything is so complete When you're walking out on the street And the wind that catches your feet It says you die and cry Wild Night, her and John Mellencamp's cover of the Van Morrison song. It's her biggest hit. It peaked at number three on the Billboard Top 100 in 1994. And for Michelle, this was a wild time of the world opening up in a lot of ways. She was connecting with Muslim teachers and converted to Islam. There was romance. She was on MTV. It all felt great at first. I didn't listen well, and I think that's why, you know— I'm trying to find my record contract because I literally signed, you know, my life away because I, I was just happy 
I was content that you wanted to hear my music. Mm -hmm. And I think for a decade of making music, that's where the contentment came from. So whatever I have to do to do that, okay. <laughs> I was not very business savvy. I was not very socially savvy. Because luckily I'm naive in a sense, or I'm not a master of the social cues. I'm like a bull in a china shop. I've, I've had to like, just like learn some, a few things. And I'm glad I have, and I'm glad now I can see there is, there's a way that dominant culture works. There is a way that the music business works. I don't, I'm no longer rail against it. I just see it for what it is. Uh-huh. Was there something that happened after that decade where you realized that it was not just enough to be given the opportunity to make music? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I, um, 9-11 was a real changing experience for me. Hmm. I flew the day before on the same plane oh. to do a fashion week show. It was a surreal experience. And I just remember I got to the hotel the, the, on the 10th, the night, evening of the 10th. And then I got to the, the, this hotel, and it was one of the fanciest hotels I'd ever s been in my life. And I remember on the back of the door, you could see the price of the room, and it was some exorbitant amount that my mind just was just blown and it was like just an evening of extravagance and so I'm there and then I wake up the next morning and there's no water there's nothing there's chaos and I remember hearing people say things that were mind-blowing to me like what do you mean we're not going to have the show or can't you just send a helicopter and pick me up like it taught me about wealth and mm -hmm. and just it just was like a surreal experience. And then I ran to the middle of Times Square because the hotel was on 6th Avenue. And I watched the first tower fall, like in real time, like not on a screen. Yeah, you witnessed it. And it was just like we're all in Times Square as if it's New Year's Eve. And I made one call to the person who I loved and I believe loved me at that time. And I got through I just marked that as the beginning my life changed. Wow. Just It was like the beginning where I'm stuck here. <laughs> hmm. I'm literally stuck in this city. Where am I going to go? What is going to happen? All seems so meaningless. Mm -hmm. And as a musician or as, as someone who's sensitive to, sensitive to that, it's just that, yeah, the feeling and to watch people's worlds change and perceptions of the world change. That's when I think that's a big marker for me. Yeah. Plus, I had a recording that was going to come out and I was in the hijab. And then they were like, you cannot put that out. <laughs> oh. You know, it was just like a, just like a moment for me where you just see like this is entertainment. And I don't think I want to be an entertainer. Mm. I want to be a musician. Mm. I want to be a really good musician and songwriter. I want to be a really good person. 
I know the power of music. It's like you're given a sword and you're just out there willy-nilly waving it around. <laughs> yes, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant, but yeah, I just know the power. I'm learning the power of the sound waves and the power of the word and the human voice, its effect on your molecular structure and its ability to bring about a memory. Like, there's nothing more powerful than a love song. Like, I'm going to cry right now. Like, there is, there is music that I can hear. And it just transports you like a time machine to that moment. a period of time where I just didn't do anything. Mm. I just stopped. How long was that period of not doing anything? Of- oh, like five, six years. So the accountant was like, you have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you have made it to zero. <laughs> Nothing's happening. You, Yeah, I'm like, it was, yeah. So... And and that period of rest, was that in your 30s, that period of stepping away yes. completely? So, you know, I had a bad reputation. Mm. I was just like a loose cannon. And, you know, so I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And then I think my partner now, just for, I just, I I praise her. <laughs> I'm so grateful just to have the patience to aid me in my endeavors and clarity and as learning to take responsibility for my actions. I am not special. Just because they give you free beer at the bar because they like your songs means nothing. And, (laughs) you know, I just try to care for the people who are kind enough to, like, not blow smoke up my arse and treat me like a human being. Do you, do you feel like you still, you, both of your parents are gone. Do you, do you feel like you're still in relationship with them? Is that how you experience it? Oh, not anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think this new recording is, a, is me letting that go. It's, it's like, I mean, I have their ashes on my altar. I'm with them every day. This is the, for the last few years. Hmm physically more than I was. I mean, I left my house as soon as I could. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the relationship I have now is one of, of knowledge and educating myself about being human because I have to really humble myself and understand that my parents were, are people of color who were born before civil rights from in the South and have, have had an experience that I can't fathom and I don't know what they were equipped with. And I think reading The Fire next time changed that for me. 
my mother had a fourth grade education. I taught my mother how to read. Hmm. Um, my father was a frustrated musician who joined the military. And in the Baldwin book, I never forget, it's like, he talks about how men go to the military and they're ruined. You mm -hmm. ruin their humanity. Um, and I think, yeah, my father came back very disillusioned, also an alcoholic to deal with the pain. Um, it's not the center of my being, but I'm no longer rolling through my life thinking that systematic racism <laughs> did not have an effect on my family and how I grew up and the perception I have of myself. In Michelle's life now, she's raising her younger 13-year-old son with her partner, Allison. They've been married since 2005. Michelle's older son, Solomon, is 34. I thank my son, Solomon, every day. Every day of my life, he made me a better person. There's so many things I wish I could have done differently. But like having a child at 20 and with no preparation... I, if I could do it all again, I think I would, just in the terms of what I, like exposing him to certain like situations, um, not going on tour a lot and having to leave him with people I loved. I know he was safe, but I know that was hard. Mm. Also moving around a lot and not allowing him to create certain sort of relationships in high school. Like, they're not regrets, they're just something I see is like, oh, I see how this works with the child. Mm. But I think it's made him, like, he's a, a fantastic traveler. Mm. <laughs> and he is just, like, he's the ambassador of love and a good time. He's modular. He can, you can, he can go anywhere. Huh. Uh -huh. He's culturally fluent, you know. And so I hope he, I hope he appreciates that. Um, and then with my, my youngest because he is not from my body. He's from my two, like, people I love so dearly. Um, you know, he may not come from my body, but he is my creation. Mm. <laughs> and the love I have for him is a love that is, um, I feel like I see him for him. I don't attach it to my, my ego. Like, I have to see him for him and him only. <laughs> Uh huh. You, you Unlike can't. with my son, yeah, which I, with my, my first son out of my body, I think there was a lot of like, okay, this happened in my family and I can't let you be like that. Like there was a lot of like projection. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a lot of osmosis. I do see aspects of my personality. Um, but I, as a parent, I, I make this joke. I, I read it in a New York Times article where some people are furniture makers, I'm more of a gardener. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what seeds I've planted, but I try to just cultivate it and water it and give it enough sun, prune it. Um, I'm not angry at it when it pricks me with its thorns. You know, I just try to be there, which I'm learning with all human interactions. I just want to be there for you and in my absence, that you know that I care, 
immensely. of an embarrassing question and it's a personal question um hit me i'm you know as somebody like you make art and you have made you have made art that you have been proud of and you also have made you've like continually tried to make art and like evolving in different ways and you've talked about like trying to get to that beginner's mind mm-hmm. and when i think of that I think there's a particular creative challenge for people who have found some success, made something that was beautiful, shared it with people, and then they have to try to do it again. (laughs) It can be really (laughs) scary, especially if you're trying to do it in a new way. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about trying to make music in a way that's not derivative of past ways you have found external validation or success? What do you focus on? How do you get to that place? I just, I don't, yeah, I don't really think about that, Anna, to be honest. I uh-huh. just, everything you just said is just like, who thinks like that? <laughs> I do. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> or like, yeah, I can't, I'm going to rest on my laurels. So yeah, um, I just, yeah, I, yeah. No, it's, I not, it's not resting on laurels. It's being afraid of losing ground after building something you're proud of. Do you know that's sort of oh, more okay. of the feeling okay. that I have? Okay. But it sounds like it doesn't resonate, that question. I just, I don't, no, I don't how, how do you, yeah, I'm like, uh, yeah, like my mind doesn't even, I can't even f- frame my thought to that. I just am like, I try, I mean, there's no encore. I just, so I just, I, um, bear with me. I think, I think authenticity is unsustainable. I just want to say that first. What's that mean? I just try to be like really in the moment with the music. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) It really isn't. And um, I just come to every conversation that I'm having with myself in the music with the intention of just being present mm. in any work I do. It's not like I'm trying like stay authentic, because I think that's unsustainable, too. That's like a character you put on. But honestly, I think I thrive on naivete, a loss of brain cells. (laughs) (laughs) And I truly am a person, I walk in faith 
I, I really believe even what I hear is a transmission. I just wait for the transmission. Mm. And some of them I have to set aside. And, but I always make music. I draw, I paint, I, I try to... I am driven to... I'm driven by self-expression because I feel so trapped in this material experience. That's Michelle and Dagia Cello. Her latest album is called The Omnicord Real Book. We used lots of songs from it in this episode, and it's nominated for the Best Alternative Jazz Album Grammy Award this year. You can see all the music of hers we used in our episode transcript at deathsexmoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Andrew Dunn with help from Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our intern is Ellie McKay, whom we are saying goodbye to this week. Thank you, Ellie, and best of luck in all that's next. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter if you haven't already. I write a weekly essay there. And as we've told you, our show is in transition here at WNYC, and we'll share updates about the future of the show there as we learn them, along with other things that the team and I are thinking about. Sign up to get that newsletter every week at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Thank you to Marjorie Nicholson Albers in Kalispell, Montana, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. We couldn't do this without you, Marjorie, and all of our sustaining members. Thank you. As Michelle and I ended our conversation, I asked her whether she had artist role models now in this stage of life, and she told me she doesn't really, and she's on the lookout. I am desperate, actually, to find mentorship at my age, I don't have a lot of elder women in my life. So the things that are happening to my body are really interesting, and I wish I had people to talk to about it. I think I noticed this morning that Shaka Khan had commented on an Instagram post of yours, so maybe you should send her a DM. Oh, could- no, yeah, I love her. Oh, my <laughs> God. Are you? Oh, my God. <laughs> we all should make a brunch date. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.